Hello, this is a replay episode of Control-Alt-Delete. It was recorded back in 2021 with writer Ian Leslie. He is the author of multiple books on human behaviour. He writes about psychology, culture, technology and business. And he writes for The New Statesman, The Economist, The Guardian and so many more. He also writes a substack called The Ruffian with articles around why you should disagree with yourself, cultural topics and in this episode we discuss his new book conflicted why arguments are tearing us apart and how they can bring us back together again really enjoyed this chat on why disagreeing is a good thing and how we can all disagree better hope you enjoy this episode So I'm really excited today to have Ian Leslie on the podcast. I've been wanting to do an episode on how to have better conversations or how to disagree better and the power of conflict for so long. And when your book arrived, I just, it was such a great read. I learned so much more about the topic and yeah, we all need to talk more. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. That is very nice to hear. Nice to be here. So I actually wanted to start off with something that you mentioned in the acknowledgements of your book. I'm just very nosy. You wrote the book in Paris. Is that right? What led you there and what was it like writing it? I I wrote some of the book in Paris. I I was there for um, a couple of months, I think, in the sort of last stage of of writing of the book. I was a writer in residence at a, a, a wonderful place, institution called the American Library in Paris which is what it says on the tin. Um, uh, it's uh, an English language library run and, and funded by, by American philanthropists. It's been there for, I think, ever since the, uh, shortly after the Second World War. Um, and one of the nice things they do is they have a writer who's working on a project to come and, uh, you know, you just kind of have a slot in the library and they kind of help you out with accommodation and uh and you just have to you know be part of the life of the library and do it a couple of talks and um and there's a lovely community around the the, the place um so it was very very nice i had to persuade my wife and uh <clears throat> my two young children <laughs> that this was an essential part of the writer's task um to go and <laughs> essentially be uh, uh, you know a, a flaneur in in Paris for a couple of months but um, I have a very understanding family. I just wanted to ask you that as well to live vicariously through you for a second because I think being in lockdown as a writer it's not been I mean for some people it's pr- probably been great but for me I love getting out and about while I'm writing so it's nice to hear that you did that. And there's no better place to be out about than than in Paris. It's the greatest kind of walking around and wandering around and being stimulated, you know, place in in, in the world, really. So, yeah, I was I was very, very thankful and very lucky that it happened before the pandemic. Totally. So your book, Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes, is is such a great book of, of our time now, especially with social media and Twitter and things. But this book is kind of more broad than that, isn't it? It's not just about social media. Do you think that is a bit of a myth that we suddenly can't talk and have arguments because of online culture? Do, or do you think it has added to our inability, basically, to disagree? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think it's... um. It's not. Uh, it's definitely made it harder, and it's definitely raised new, new problems. Um, but it's only part of a kind of wider issue we have, which is actually kind of has much deeper historical roots. Something I talk about, as you know, in the, in the kind of opening chapter chapter of the book, where I talk about 
the fact that we're now living in cultures where everybody has a right to speak. Some get heard more than others still, of course, but we, we are generally much more uh, open to different points of view and to people having the right to be heard uh, than we were, you know, 100 years or even 50 years ago, let alone 300 years ago. So this is a kind of long-term historical trend of more and more voices who are expected to be part of the conversation, right? So, and that means that there's a lot more places where we disagree because you know what happens when people speak their mind is you find out that they don't think what you think and they often say things you find disagreeable and then you want to talk back what social media and the internet done has accelerated and uh, in some places kind of weaponized that that move towards more open debate and 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 disagreement and we're now in this world where everybody can disagree with anybody at the speed of light, you know, <laughs> and anybody can kind of, at the, the moment they have the impulse to disagree, they, they, they can do so and everybody can hear what they're saying. And we're just not remotely prepared for it. You know, nothing in our evolution has prepared for it. Nothing in, our, uh, you know, historical cultural development as, as a species for most of our, existence you know we've lived in settled tribes and settlements where where there was a clear hierarchy you know most of your decisions or a lot of your decisions a lot of your beliefs were already settled for you the moment you were born right you didn't have to think that that hard about a lot of stuff you just got on with it um and we're now in this world where everything's up for grabs the 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 number of issues on which in inverted commas we all agree is shrinking Mm -hmm. fast um, and, and we're faced with this kind of incredible disagreement machine uh, of, of the internet and social media. I think it's completely caught us unaware. And nobody's come along and said, you know what? It's really actually hard to disagree well uh, and, and to disagree in a way in which you and both parties or all parties come away thinking, well, that was actually really useful and interesting. I'm glad we had that disagreement. So we do it really badly yeah. because <laughs> nobody trains you for it. Nobody, you know, nobody says, here's how to do it. And so we either get stuck into horrible, pointless annoying and upsetting rows or actually the bigger problem is because we've seen that happen or we've experienced it we avoid it altogether and when we avoid it we just miss out on so much uh, uh, as well I'm sure we'll talk about yeah and what's so great about the book is at the end and also all, all the way through obviously there are sort of practical bits of how to actually do this how to disagree better and I found that so so useful but I I was thinking the other day that the fact that with online culture we've kind of produced this culture of branding each other constantly like the personal brand and labeling people all the time and you're this politically minded and you're this person and I feel like people can jump from oh I disagree with you slightly to you're a terrible person and I hate you And that's what I find really weird about now is if I say I don't like dogs, for example, someone could say, I I do not like you then. Yeah, you're a dog hater. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an anti-dog. Yeah, you're (laughs) anti-dog and I'm pro-dog. So, you know, we, we, I don't like you. You know, I, this is, I'm not, that's not true, by the way. <laughs> I, by the way, me. I do like welcome dogs into my home. I just don't want one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It, one cannot want a dog in one's home and still, but but yeah, you're right. The, our conversation immediately moves into these kind of, <clears throat> you know, these polarized groups. And that happens particularly on Twitter because it, on, on, on Twitter or, or on other social media, 
um, the the kind of mediating effect of being in someone's presence, even a virtual presence is better than than, than no presence, um, means that the, your conversation becomes focused on this tiny little thing, which is the disagreement itself. And the disagreement tends to go badly if it becomes only about the disagreement. Disagreements go much better when we have a rich sense of the other person, because we know that there's more at stake here than just this thing that we're disagreeing about. Well, you know, we have a kind of intuitive sense that although we're talking about this thing, we disagree on it, we could still get on in all sorts of other ways. We probably share lots of interests and, and lots of uh, beliefs and, and, and affections and, and so on. Um, when you take all that stuff away, when you strip out all the context of a, of a relationship, of, of a conversation, and, and the disagreement becomes about this, this, this little issue that you're talking about. And suddenly, you know, you kind of impose all your fantasies of that person. They, they become sucked into that, that dis disagreement. And so you think, oh, well, Emma's a, Emma's a clearly a bad person. You know, she's, she doesn't like dogs. She hates dogs. Um, she's um, probably got all sorts of other beliefs that I disagree with. Um, <laughs> and, and either you get into a row or you just walk away from the conversation. So, yeah, it's it's... Social media is not a good place to have productive disagreements. I, I mean, I, I do talk about some ways you can do it better, but generally I would say, you know, try and have your disagreements somewhere else. And I, I now am definitely that person that says, uh, I'm not going to do this on Twitter, but we could talk about it elsewhere because the character yeah. limit just is not going to work. But I love that bit in the book where you talk about a low context world because for me, I see this more and more, even just around my own dinner table when I go home for Christmas, for example. You've got all these people sat around the table. We do have a lot of context with, with each other, but mm. we're all reading different things. And my dad's reading a different yeah. newspaper to me and disagreements happen. And I know that the context um, bit is is slightly different to the fact that we're all reading different things, but well, we lose context with each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you don't have the shared background context of the fact that we all watched BBC News, you know, or, or whatever it is, or we will read a couple of the same newspapers. Um, therefore, we're starting with the same kind of agreed set of uh, of information and a kind of range of views that's kind of been set by that. Um, now, as you say, people can come to that table, even when they know each other really well, with just a really <laughs> huge variety of different kinds of information and different kinds of ideologies and beliefs. And they, they come to that table and, and they sit down and then they're expected to just kind of have a, have a great conversation about it. It's actually hard. It's even harder sometimes for people you love. Exactly, exactly. So, so when I, you know, getting the relationship right in a disagreement is the first thing you have to do. And that's not just the question of, you know, do I know this person or do I love this person? You can, you can know and love a person, be close to somebody, somebody and still get the conversation off on the wrong foot and from a relationship point of view. In fact, you know, as you know, it happens more often than not, right? We, we, you have really bad disagreements with, with your partner, with, with your members of your family. And the same principle applies actually right across the board. So whether it's at work or in the public realm, you know, in, on social media, the, the first thing for, for a disagreement to, 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 to be productive is you have to kind of put the, the relationship level on a kind of uh, um on a level uh, footing it has to be kind of settled in some way before you get into into the disagreement so interesting and when i was reading your book i did think because i've done a lot of episodes on this podcast recently about people pleasing and people trying to get out of the tendencies of just sort of agreeing with people all the time and 
having an easy life and kind of then having a lot of resentment actually inside. And to me, your, you know, the bit about relationships and how open conflict actually makes your relationship stronger. To me, it seems like the opposite of people pleasing in a good way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when I started writing this book, I thought it was going to be roughly a, a book about kind of how we, we can kind of avoid conflict or kind of take conflict out of our lives and just talk through our differences in this really kind of calm, um, you know, platonic manner. Um, and the more I looked at it, the more I th- and the more I researched, the more I thought, actually, the, the bigger problem is not the toxic disagreements. I mean, that is a problem, obviously, that we see on social media, et cetera, et cetera. The bigger problem is, is avoiding disagreement because we find it so stressful. And, and that feeling of stress and, 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 oh, bad things are going to happen if I disagree is increased by seeing it because toxic disagreements are so visible now. We see them all, all the time. And that enhances our sense that, ah, oh God, this is a, I don't want to get into this. You know, this is just not going to go well. Um, and, and yeah, so, so because of we, we fear what's going to do to the relationship and we want to, we want to please people. We, we avoid it whenever we can. And when we avoid it, as you say, the disagreement doesn't go well. It just goes underground and becomes resentment and becomes passive aggression, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and in, in, in the work context, it becomes office politics, right? Office politics is basically passive aggression at, at, at scale. Um, and that is corrosive to relationships, right? Much more corrosive than having the odd route now and again right that's the thing that so avoiding disagreement is really the thing that's going to kind of drive people apart when i talk to to relationship scientists yeah they they were they were really interesting because they said in our field for a long time we assumed that the couples who are happiest are the ones who never or, or rarely get into heated arguments um and when they do have differences they just talk them through very calmly because you know it's certainly true that that couples who split up often do have a lot of heated rows right so therefore we thought oh well heated rows arguments are really bad so and now they're kind of changing their mind about that collectively i think as a as a as a discipline and because when they actually test this right so they actually get couples into laboratories they, they get them to talk about contentious issue, issues in the relationship and actually before you know it the couples forget that there's a camera trained on them and they just get you know, they have <laughs> oh, they God. get into an argument or, or you know or, or not or they just sit there um and um the, the the couples who are more ready to get into arguments who actually have a kind of lower threshold for Oi, you know, I'm really upset about this. Um, are the ones who are more likely to stay together, and because then they track the, the progress of these couples over the months and years uh, to come. And and the, the couples who do that are more likely to stay together, more likely to be happier, more likely to solve their problems than the ones who are very calm and and don't get into an argument at all. And one of the one of the psychologists who studies this said to me, "Look, conflict is information." When you're in an argument, you are finding out, often in no uncertain terms, <laughs> what your partner really thinks and really feels in a way that you're actually not, you can't actually get often from a calm conversation. You know, you, you, either you avoid the conversation because you, you know it's going to get you get, get into a row, in which case you're not getting information about what they think and feel, or you have a kind of very careful, you know, hedged calm in inverted commas conversation and again you're not really getting the information about so a, a, a rouse enables you to see into their heart 
And and that is the way the secret to you know a long term relationship is is kind of you know one of the secrets is staying up to date on what your partner really thinks and feels and not assuming that you know because often that, what yeah. happens is you know the 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 the, couple, the partners in the and the, they assume they they think they know what the other thinks and feels right because we know each other so well right we've been together for so long and then one day bam you know they find out that's not true yeah and and you can avoid those big shocks if you have more arguments because <laughs> the arguments are giving you a constant kind of source of little updates on on the emotions that are going on and, and the feelings that are going on just just a little beneath the surface God, that's so true. I, I definitely think in my relationship, we have kind of like little and often kind of little little scraps that we sort out. And it's like, actually, then we never have a huge bust up because we're always in the loop. Yeah. And actually, there's a really lovely quote in your book. You say, when we disagree, we bring the whole of ourselves, our head, our heart, our gut. And I just thought, actually, yeah, you're not seeing that person for who they are if you're not seeing that side of them. A part of this for me was you have to be able to disagree and not try and change the other person's mind and actually just be happy in your own thoughts. Like we don't have to always try and aggressively change the other person. Maybe we don't need to change them. Yeah. Well, and in fact, the, the, the problem is, is that when you try and aggressively change someone else's mind, you get the opposite right it backfires they, they they just become more entrenched and more kind of extreme in 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 their position yeah you're right it's a curious you know almost buddhist like kind of paradox um where the more you push basically the more they, they you push back in, in fact you have to kind of stop thinking about it as pushing it's more like you're, you're removing the barriers to them coming around to your point of view that's the that's the better way to to think about whatever's going to stop them kind of changing their mind or being at least being more flexible in the way they think um try and try and get remove those, those barriers people who practice difficult conversations firsthand um, as you know, I talk to uh, divorce mediators and hostage negotiators and, and interrogators. And in an interrogation, expert interrogators, very kind of intuitively brilliant psychologists, right? They understand human the human heart better than most of us. They're just very good at it. Um, and they do not walk into the room. Uh, and, and, and sort of bang their hands on, on, on fists on, on the desk and say, you got to tell me what you know. It's not like in the, in the movies, right? Actually, some like bad interrogators do that, but the really good interrogators do not. They walk into the, to the room, they sit down opposite the suspect who might be a real hardened terrorist. And certainly the interrogators I talk to deal with these people. Um, and they make a big deal out of the fact that you, the suspect does not have to talk if he doesn't want to, right? So, so a, a, an inexperienced interrogator will kind of mumble over the rights, you know, your rights at the beginning. So, well, you have the right not to talk, you have the right to a lawyer. Anyway, let's start the right now. Now let's talk about what you're going to tell me. The expert interrogator walks into the room and says, listen, you absolutely have the right not to talk. Um, I can't tell you what to, what to do. Uh, your lawyer can't tell you what to do. My colleague here can't, none of us can tell you what to do, right? It's completely up to you. So, and as you, as you know, you can leave the room if you want to, right? That's, that's your right. Um, so, um, but listen, I would just really like to hear 
um, how you got here. I, I, and <laughs> these hardened terrorists who actually do really want to tell their story, it, just just open up and gush, you know, and all wow. the information comes out with it. And, and that's a really interesting example of how the interrogator does not push, right? He doesn't come and come in and say, right, you need to tell me what you know or you're in trouble. The interrogator just removes the the the, the barrier to to him right because because if, if you come in and you say you've got to tell me then that's just yeah. in a way that's easy for the other person to say all right i don't want to tell you you want to oh. and you just set up this barrier and the interrog the canny interrogator just takes that away and says well you don't have to talk if you don't want to you don't have to tell me but I would like to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and, and it's the same in addiction therapy. So you talk, and they, in fact, some of them have learned from addiction therapists that, that if you tell an addict, you have to stop drinking, um, uh, you have to stop taking drugs. It's really screwing up your life. It's, it's messing up your family, you know, all of which is true. But if you, if you say that to them, they, they just come, you know, it become even more entrenched in, in the habit because the, the innately perverse part of us, the part that hates to be pushed around basically and dominated comes back and says, well, no, I really want to drink. I like drinking. It's my right. It's my freedom. It's the only thing I like. Why shouldn't I? So it's completely counterproductive. So the really good addiction therapists um, do not do that. They, they just say, look, you tell me what's going on. And you, you, you know, you're here for a reason what is it? I, 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 and they listen, right? And yeah, yeah, so interesting. They're not completely neutral, but they're they're not saying you need to do this. You know, if the other person comes around to their point of view of the of their own accord, then they'll be, you know, it's it's going to be much more authentic and more truthful, and in the, in the end, they're much more likely to change. I swear I've watched a TED talk somewhere about the power of the tone of voice as well. Like if someone's talking to you in a very calm voice. Not like a pretend one, but just a general gentle voice. It's very hard to be angry against that because we're kind of mirroring each other as humans. Yeah. I, okay. Listen, that's really interesting. I was, a couple of things about that. One is tone is very important and it's underestimated, and not just um, uh, voice, physical voice, but but even just the tone with which you write a message, right? Very yeah. hard to judge, yeah. by the way, on, on yeah. email or, yeah. or, or particularly on Twitter. But tone is very important. And sometimes we kind of dismiss it and say, oh, well, yeah, well, let's talk about the substance, you know, forget about that. No, tone is important because tone is actually where you communicate a lot of emotion, you know, in very kind of compressed form. Um, and, and it also kind of indicates it sends signals about how you feel about the other person, right? About whether or not you're angry with the other person or you're fearful of the other person, uh, hostile and, and so on. So tone, tone is hugely important. I agree, I agree with you that calm tone is often preferable, but not always. So if somebody is really upset, you know, if my wife's really upset about something and I'm just super calm and unemotional, that can be really infuriating. <laughs> Um, and, and it can be like oh you're just not yeah and so there's a kind of phrase that that somebody uh uh used one of the police negotiators i talked to in, in the book said i try and start where they are um and he didn't mean that if they're shouting at me i'm going to shout back it's not quite that but it is kind of accepting that there is some emotional if there is some emotional energy there i need to kind of recognize it acknowledge it even just if it's just in words and say i can see you're really angry I, I okay i understand that i didn't realize how angry you were 
just getting the emotion out on the, on the table is actually a really important step. And you're actually, yeah, you can do that calmly. All, all, I guess all I'm, my slight reservation about the calmness thing is, yeah, if, you, if you're kind of like Dr. Spock-like about everything. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if you're kind of too logical, it can be a little bit. <laughs> totally. Um, all right, but just changing topics slightly, because I really want to talk to you about this, because I talk a lot about creativity on this podcast and being creative, getting better ideas, especially during this time, I feel like, I don't know, some people are getting great ideas. I'm not. I'm just stuck inside four walls. Um, but you talk a lot about how conflicts can help us be more creative and or at least the partnership between the two. And I know you include the Wright brothers example in the book. And I was talking to a friend about that the other day. And I don't think people know that that case study. Would you be able to just share that and yeah. also how it can spur thoughts and ideas? It's crazy, isn't it? I, I, so the Wright brothers, I think a lot of people know vaguely, like I did, that the Wright brothers invented the aeroplane. What's really remarkable about the Wright brothers is that they were not scientists. They were not even kind of uh, highly trained engineers. And so when they were working on this problem at the kind of end of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, you had many of the best minds all, all around the world working on this problem of manned flight, right? And you had kind of corporations and institutions working on it. You had brilliant engineers, brilliant scientists. And these guys, these were two guys who ran a bike shop. They, they hadn't even been to, I don't think they'd been to university. They certainly didn't have kind of higher ed, ed, education. Um, they really hadn't accomplished anything, except that they, they ran this bike shop in, in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. Um, but they were obsessive amateur uh, engineers and they became obsessed by this problem. And a big part of the reason that they beat everybody to its solution is that they were working together and, and they were arguing all the time <laughs> and they were constantly knocking out each other's weak arguments or, you know, proposite or hypothesis and, and bringing in stronger ones through this process of debate and argument, which actually they were kind of consciously taught by their father, right? So the father would sit them down at the dinner table um, and would teach them in a kind of you know, traditional um, scholastic form of debate. He would say, right, Wilbert, you take this side of the, the argument um, and uh, Orville, you take the other. And then after 30 minutes, you're going to swap sides. They were trained in debating in that sense. But it wasn't just that. It's that they really enjoyed it. So people used to walk past the bike shop and they would hear these like loud voices spilling out of, of, from above the, uh, the shop. And they would, they would get worried. They would say, well, these, these boys are just like, you know, do they really hate each other? But they loved it. They, and they were very, very close, right? They, they, and it was because they loved each other and they were so close that they were able to get into these, these kind of furious sometimes, but certainly very animated rows about how to build an aeroplane. Um, and so I just think, you know, it's a lovely example of how innovation and, and new thinking really comes from the collision of different kind of uh, ideas and different opinions and different viewpoints and different bits of information just sort of coming together, smashing together and fusing into something new. Right. And they, they, they kind of embodied that par, par excellence. But it's also a great example of the way that you can really have a vigorous and productive and hugely productive disagreement if your relationship is good. Right. And so you've got to get that bit first. Right. Now, we're not all going to be like brothers, like, you know, close brothers like, like they are. But in whatever context, you know, the, the, the more you kind of settle that bit, the, the better disagreements you have. And, and, and then it becomes a virtuous circle. 
Yeah, I love I love that story. And it's it's really inspiring just, you know, coming up with solutions and seeing people do that. I think what what's interesting about this conversation for me is I feel like privately I'm really good at disagreeing and with my closest friends and with my family, like we go there. What's so weird at the moment is this like cancel culture thing where people are so genuinely afraid. Like there might be people listening who are like, God, I really do want to disagree or or have these conversations, but doing it in public spaces is te- is kind of terrifying because you can have like pylons and people getting the wrong end of the stick. Do you have any advice on how to do this in a way that isn't so terrifying? Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I, mean I, that's a, I, I, I'm not sure I have advice, but I, I would say I agree with you. I, I, I think it has had a kind of a slightly chilling effect on on on, on disagreement. I mean, the, the only advice is, you know, you, we don't have to have these arguments or these discussions and debates in in public. That's that's a relatively new thing where where you go on Twitter and you say, "Well, I'm going to solve the problem of you know, gender differences um, in public." Yeah. Um, and 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 certainly, of course, you know, there are now social media where you can have more private conversations, um, and you can have them in voice or in person, you know, as well as through text, because text is really kind of the lowest context form of communication uh, of all. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I think that the 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 cancel culture, for want of a better phrase, but you know, it's really another example of how to avoid disagreement. Yeah, it's just another way of saying, "Wow, oh, I find this stuff really uncomfortable and difficult." So, therefore, here's another way I can avoid it. I'll just decide the other person's evil, um, or, or you know, should not be part of of, of of the realm of acceptable ideas or, or debate. That's great, but well, that means I can only talk to people who already agree with me about stuff. So, you know, it's the same instinct as it is to you know, it's a people pleasing instinct inverted it's the same thing it's just another way of saying right well this is too uncomfortable for me so i'm, uh, I'm going to avoid it um yeah. so there are all these forces pressing on you to say don't have open disagreements and and i just think it's destructive ultimately to our relationships and and to our creativity to not have them it's funny how it's like biologically wired isn't it you know if you're about to disagree with some people in a room it's almost like we go back to like caveman days and we're like oh they're gonna like eat me or kill me <laughs> And you've got to kind of get over that. It's literally the same part of the brain. You associate the conflicting opinion with the person and you assume that the person is out to attack you, right? So so when somebody says, I, I disagree with, with what you're saying about this, this project at work or, or, or your political view, your, your brain reads that as, right, okay, well, this person is coming at me with a knife, <laughs> you know, or, or something like that. And I need to defend them. And you go into defense mode immediately. And that means that you're not really thinking, that takes a few points of your IQ immediately. You become a little bit stupider once you're in defense mode, right? Because you can't be cognitively flexible. You can't think things through. Um, and, and it just becomes this kind of game of, of back and forth. So, so a couple of things about that. What One is you know, try not to get into defense mode. It's very hard. A lot of this is easier said than done, but try and be open to, to other, other points of view. The other thing is you can understand that that's what the other person is likely to do as well and try and lower their defenses. So try and not make them feel like they're being attacked, right? Which goes back to this, what we were talking about in terms of, you know, with the interrogators and the therapists and, and, and so on. Well, those guys are very skilled at 
at putting the other, making the other person feel more secure in the conversation. So when somebody's behaving really irrationally or, or they're being hostile, and you can sense that, try and think to yourself, how can I actually, that's because this person is feeling insecure in some way and, and they feel like their identity or their status is at threat. Right? They feel like they might be humiliated in, in this conversation. So how can I avoid that? Uh, how can I help them feel that's not going to happen? Right? Maybe I can just big them up a bit. You know, maybe yeah. I can pay them a compliment. Maybe, maybe I can show them, you know, I really do respect you. And I'm, I, I think you're great. Just disagreeing about this thing. That's all. Um, yeah. yeah so, so you can manage it. You can kind of manage it. So it, it works better. I really love that. That's actually a really lovely note to end on that. After all of this, it's literally about making people feel safer and making us feel safer with each other. And that. Yeah could lead to literally a better world for everyone um but to anyone listening who could listen to ian talk for hours more because i could go and buy the book it's so great there's so much more in there to um gobble up and yeah thank you for your work because i also saw that hadn't you written a book before about curiosity and i feel like these two books kind of it feels like conflict is about curiosity at the heart of it yeah, I didn't realise that until I wrote the book, but you're right. There's definitely a strong underlying continuing theme there. <laughs>